Thank you, worship team. That was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. The soloists and all, I appreciate the effort that goes into presenting us and helping us with the ministry of music on a week-by-week basis. Today is the second in a five-sermon series called Can You Hear Me Now? And today's message is entitled The Social Dilemma, not the documentary, The Social Dilemma, Engaging with Community. The challenge that we have as a church, and we've talked about some of the statistics in the last few weeks, the challenge that we have in in really engaging with people in the community in a way that is impactful in their lives and even impactful to our congregation as well. At eight seconds, the average adult attention span is less than a goldfish. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. At eight seconds, the average adult attention span is less than a goldfish. Uh, I don't know who you're thinking about right now that you think that is really applicable for, but uh, it, it does create challenges for getting people's attention. And they're all, our attention is, is certainly uh, uh, captured by many, many things these days. In fact, we, uh, we understand that, that getting people's attention is one of, the, one of the difficulties in them hearing the voice of God. Even when we're sharing it and we're trying to communicate and share our lives with them, uh, this God is calling. And sometimes it's not that they have trouble hearing, is that we and they don't even pick up the phone. God is calling. How do we get people's attention? The Nielsen Research Group did a study and determined that the average adult spends 11 hours per day interacting with media and television. 11 hours a day. They said that 26% of those uh, 18 to 34 people or 28% of that time is spent watching TV. For those 50 to 64, the amount of time that time spent watching TV is 60%. For those of us 65 and older, I'm sure it's off the charts. <laughs> so grabbing people's attention, capturing people's attention has is, is become more and more of a challenge. And there are media interests and, and all kinds of, of uh, efforts in communities to get people's attention about issues and concerns. Uh, so barriers to engaging with Uh, people in the community are not just attention getting but there are common uh, common effects that are needed to be given attention capturing the attention of people let's look at what it means to engage I thought we had this solved today but we'll try it again To engage is to provoke new and prolonged interest and participation. It's being involved and interacting with other people, events, and expectations. To to engage is to provoke new and prolonged interest. That's more than just capturing someone's attention. Why are so many people not engaged with the church? Well... University of Chicago author Charles Gilkey wrote a book called The Function of the Church in Modern Society. 
And he said this, The theory of some radical Protestants seems to be that while religion may last, the church has outlived its usefulness. He wrote that in January of 1914. (laughs) Some things never change. The challenge of engaging, engaging others with the church and the gospel of Christ is ever always been a difficult thing, and it remains so today. So we're going to look at some of the social dilemmas that we face in order to engage others. The first is the dilemma of diversity. Diversity in our demographics and just our lifestyles. Clark County demographics were reported in 2020 that that there is a cultural diversity, that 94% of Clark County residents speak English, 5% speak Spanish as as a first language, and many, many others have dual languages being spoken in the home, representing that there is a cultural diversity based on nationality and race and backgrounds and where people have come from. We know that to be true. Racial diversity is there. It's all around us. 89% of the residents in Clark County are white. 7% are black and 5% are Hispanic or Latino. Again, a mixture of people in next door to us and around the corner. There is that religious diversity as well, whether it's Muslim and and, uh, other Middle Eastern religions, Christianity, Judaism, all kinds of diversity in our midst in this county. The age diversity looks like this. 52% of residents are between the ages of 25 and 65. 16% are are 65 and older. There's a sex and gender diversity. 49% are male. 51% are female, 4.5% are LGBTQ. I came across an employment application a couple of weeks ago and listened to the diversity identified through the questions asked on this employment application. These are categories that they ask the, uh, the applicant to respond to. First category is sexual orientation, male slash man, female slash woman, trans male slash trans man, trans female slash trans woman, gender queer slash gender nonconforming, something else, declined to answer. Race, American Indian slash Alaskan Native, black and or African American, white slash Caucasian, Asian Indian, Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Native Hawaiian, Guamanian or Chamorro, Samoan or other Pacific Islander. Sex assigned at birth, male, female, or intersex. Ethnicity, non-Hispanic Latino, Cuban Mexican, Chicano, Puerto Rican, other Hispanic Latino, or Dominican. All of those categories representing how diverse our population is and the challenge that we have in engaging the community. The reality is we don't engage the community. We engage one person at a time, each individual, because we see from those categories listed and we know from our own experience that if we try to engage the community as a whole, we are not particularly successful. It's when we relate one to another 
and engage that individual person that seems to make a difference. Let's look at a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 8. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Well, there's that that diversity that's there and that, that need to understand and identify that person even in the midst of the crowd. And you read the interactions of Jesus with people, and it was very much an engaged one-on-one when he was speaking to uh, the, the man whose daughter needed to be healed, and he was on the, this journey. He was, there was people that uh, he spoke to about their handicaps and healed them. He spoke specifically to people about their lives, beyond just the, the, the massive sermons that he gave or speaking to the crowds. There's a political diversity, there's social diversity, there's there's faith diversity. We need to pay attention to all of those things. Well, we also know that there's a dilemma. There's a dilemma of division. This is the map, redlining map of Louisville in 1937. Most of you are probably aware that in 1937, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, established by the government, sent out redlining maps to 239 cities. And the, the map was to tell bankers where they should and should not loan residents money to purchase a home. Now, the red sections here are those sections that are either are both recognized as black or non-preferential whites. In other words, don't loan money to these people in these areas to buy homes. The yellow is just one step above that. On rare occasions, maybe it's appropriate, but in general, this is still a class of folks that you really don't want to loan money for a home. And then we get to the green and the blue, which are the more uh, attractive areas of town to loan the people money to purchase a home. The dilemma of division. It's not just in racial maps from 1937. In fact, there are some, uh, I say some, there are quite a few neighborhood uh, documents and neighborhood bylaws that still exist and in the language has never been changed. Some of them still say that uh, no blacks are allowed in this neighborhood. They cannot purchase a home. Now, they're purchasing homes, and that's been uh, unwound in most cases. But the language is still there in many bylaws and constitutions of home, uh, home associations. So we look at the divisions that, that are there and all the challenges that we face with divisiveness. It also, we know that divisions happen not just in a social and a racial area or or a subject, but it also happens within our homes, within our churches, within relationships. There are divisions that come up 
And Jesus talks about one of those in 1 Corinthians, or Paul talks about those in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about that, that some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Think about that. Even in this early formation of the Christian community, there, people were picking sides and, and making up groups that they had a greater affinity with, and so they aligned themselves around the teachings of one of these, Paul or Peter or some of the others that were in the community and, and that they revered as people of faith and leaders. That division that's there that we need to overcome. And there are people in our community, individuals, one by one, that we can engage, and they want to feel valued. So we need to value them. They want to be respected. So it's our task to respect them. They want to be listened to. It's our task to listen. listen. So there's that dilemma of diversity, that dilemma of division, and we have the dilemma of distrust. This is a tough one. That distrust comes from doubt, suspicion, fear, anxiety, self-protection, that distrust has been uh, woven into our lives, to the fabric of our being and many in this community who are hesitant to reach out and be uh, open to Jesus Christ and open to the church. Laney and I have a, a friend who's the age of our children. Um, we play trivia occasionally at World of Beer there in, in Louisville. And this young man was sharing a story the other night with us when he was in college. First of all, he had he'd grown up in a, a family of faith, but he'd never really adopted any of that. And he was always skeptical of the church as an organized group, an organized religion. He was just, he naturally had a skepticism. But he was open to some degree, and he began dating a young woman while he was in college. And she was very, uh, very committed to her faith. And she had joined a campus Christian organization. And he began to go with her to those events and, and listen to the leader speak and attend Bible studies with her because he was very interested in her even though he wasn't that interested in the subject matter. At one point, she started attending a local church. And he said, I'll go with you. She said, if you'll go with me, we can start doing this. And, and I want to join that church. And would you consider joining that church? He said, yes, I would. I'll, so they went through the membership class. And they filled out an application of sorts, and they received a call about a week later that said their application had been turned down. Now this man, skeptical of organized religion, was willing to give it a shot. And they found out that the leader of the campus organization had placed a call to the leader of that admissions group at that church. And said, he's trouble. You don't want him in your church. You need to steer away from him. He's a bad influence on her, this young woman. And you don't need to have anything to do with him. And he went to the leader of that campus organization and said, what's going on? 
And he said, well, she's under my authority. She joined this organization. She's under my authority. It's my job to protect her, and I think you're a, a risky person for her life. Well, needless to say, he walked away from that group, from that church, and even still today, at the age of 32, has never attended a church regularly. There's distrust that people have, have, have uh, born into their lives. It has merged into their lives and their psyche because of these kinds of experiences. Now, many people are distrustful for less significant or less uh, dramatic uh, circumstances and experiences, but there's still that doubt and suspicion and fear and anxiety and that, that self-protection that they guard themselves with. Well, if we're going to engage others in the community, engage one by one, we need to begin to make sure that we're trustworthy. Trust is one of the key uh, points and key factors in others being receptive to what we share about our lives and our faith relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it seems simple to be trustworthy, but it can falter in such tiny ways that are interpreted by others as significant, but to us, it was just an oversight or it was something that we forgot to, to share with them or we forgot to mention that, that if we invited them, they were going to experience this or that and they, they were uncomfortable. Whatever the reason, they have experienced a growing distrust of others. So we must be trustworthy. You know, trust is, is almost like walking that, that tight wire of just, you know, walking across it above a canyon or something like that. And, and people feel that way in their lives. They feel that they're walking along about to fall or risk falling. And they need to hang on. We need to be there for them. We're going to look at a, at a humorous illustration of this from one of the greatest movies ever made, Despicable Me. Hang on! 
I got you. <laughs> Again, one of the greatest movies ever made. She's hanging on that wire, needing to trust and hang on. And there are people around us who are just hanging on. And their trust has been broken by people and by organizations. And it's hard to trust and let go and reach out to Jesus Christ, to reach out through the message that we're sharing with them. Well, we've talked about the dilemma of diversity and division and distrust. And now, the dilemma of disillusionment. This is a really challenging one to navigate with others in our relationships with them. There are people who are waiting for the last domino to fall. Experience after experience, challenge after challenge. It's that moment when, when they believe that, that what they believed in and cherished or hoped for is not going to happen or is definitely a uh, risk of not happening. All those things seem lost. We've experienced that ourselves, that disillusionment when, when life challenges us and trips us up and we continue to stumble and fall and one by one our dreams are not going to be realized. That relationship is not going to be what we thought it would be. Our faith, is we're struggling with it and it's not quite what we had hoped. We're not experiencing the fullness of Jesus Christ and we're not sure why. That dilemma of disillusionment that, that invades all of our lives from time to time. With those that we need to engage with, we need to understand that some are so disillusioned. There was a book called Revolutionary Road that was made into a movie featuring Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. They, pay, they play the Wheeler couple in the story. And you watch the movie as they have the excitement of falling in love and starting uh, getting married and planning a family. And their life is, they're struggling with it. They're struggling in their relationships with each other. They're struggling with life in general. And so they start doing things to fill that up. They have a child. He talks about changing jobs. Maybe they should move to Paris. One by one by one, they try different things. Until finally at the end, all really was lost. That disillusionment that, that is a heartache of so many. Well, what do we do? As Christians, how do we engage with that one person? And, and what do we focus on in order to kind of lift them up and start bringing them back step by step by step? We engage around hope. It's hope that is the antidote for disillusionment. It's hope that is the antidote to distrust and division. It's hope that helps us reach across the diversity that we experience day by day. There's an author named Sean Dietrich. He's a southern writer. You can hear his southern twang in his writing. And uh, he's, he's very thoughtful and clever. He, he has a blog that he shares on a daily basis as well. And uh, he shared an anonymous letter that he received and um, this is the letter. Dear, uh, this is his response to the letter. 
Dear Anonymous, you wrote to me from the ICU waiting room at 11.37 a.m. this morning. In your email, you told me about your daughter fighting to stay alive. You told me you were a mess. You said you needed a smile. Then you finished by asking a simple question. You asked what I believe hope is, and you spelled it with a capital H. Normally, I wouldn't answer a question like this because I think we can all agree that I ain't a very smart guy. In fact, I'm a putz. But you seem desperate, so if my mediocre half-cocked words can give you a few moments of calm, then, well, words you shall have. So Hope, capital H, is actually a one-pound shaker of arts and crafts glitter. Have you ever fooled around with glitter? It's messy stuff. Glitter is a clean freak's nightmare. Any second-grade teacher will tell you that glitter is a communicable disease. Yesterday, for instance, my wife visited my cousin's kid's playroom where unsupervised children were playing with illegal quantities of glitter. Their sparkly uh, glitter is now all over me. It was on her, and now it's on me. It's in my eyelids, he says. And finally, he says, you know, hope is like glitter. It takes a little bit to have a great effect. So we need to reach out with hope to those in our area, in our community, one by one. And when we do that, we need to have a focused direction of our engagement. We need to engage about the present and the future, not the past. You see, when we look at a redlining map or we look at, at things that people have experienced, this young man that I shared his story from college, and we start engaging with that person, and we want to try to explain and, and apologize and try to help them work through all of those things. In many cases, that's not where we need to focus. In fact, in most cases, we need to focus on the present and the future. Engage about that. You remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? Jesus was in the outer courts of the temple, and the scribes and uh, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees were there, and there were probably a couple of hundred people gathered around. And some men bring this woman and toss her down at the feet of Jesus. And said, this woman was caught in adultery, and, and the law says that we're to stone her to death. What do you say? They were certainly trying to catch him again and contradicting the law. And you recall that he knelt down on the ground, and he began to just kind of draw with his finger in the dirt. And he could be heard saying, let any one of you without sin cast the first stone. And it says that one by one, starting with the older of the group, they begin to drop the stones and walk away. And as he was drawing in the dirt, he looked up at her and he said, has anyone condemned you? She said, no one, sir. We'll go and sin no more. We're talking about the present. This is the present. He's speaking to that woman in the present, and then he gives her direction and a blessing for the future. Some people don't need to rehash the struggles in their life, the distrust, the reasons for that. They don't need to rehash the disillusionment and all of that that's going on in their lives. They simply need to know this is now. And you can engage with Jesus Christ and hope now and for the future. You see, 
The present and future aren't so much a clean slate that we often ask about and want to have, as they are opportunities to plant new life in soil enriched by our struggles and saturated with the tears of our joys and failures. It's life that brings us a present and future, a way to move forward. There's a story that I ran across last May of a man and woman in the Middle East. This is Yigal Yehoshua, 56-year-old man with a wife and two children. He was uh, obviously Jewish by faith and by, by uh, heritage. And he also was active in some of the, the Muslim activities of the area. So he, he crossed over a little bit, but primarily recognized as a Jewish man. And 500 yards from his home on May the 11th of 2021, he was stoned to death by a group of Palestinian and Israeli rioters. So his family knew that he was such a giving and caring person, always trying to help others, decided that they would donate his organs to be used by someone in need. And so they found out that a woman, Rhonda Oise, 59 years old, the family found out that she had received his kidney. She had been waiting for a transplant for 10 years. And so we find this Palestinian woman receiving the kidney of an Israeli man. That's about the present and the future. It's not about what led them to that moment. We need to engage our community one by one. It can be hard, but I think it's really important. Amen.